Well, I'd say that it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here, um, but I won't because my presence here comes on the heels of our pastor not, I don't need it, our pastor uh, not being able to be here. And uh, my heart and prayers go with him. And speak of being here, I just love being here. That, uh, uh, you know, I have a variety of ministry obligations. Uh, this coming year, I'll be in England for about three months. As he'd said, I'm back and forth uh, in England. I'm uh, in Israel on a number of occasions with Barry. Then I get invited to speak in different churches and conferences. But, but when I'm here, I'm, I'm always here. I, I just love the church. I love what God's doing here. You know, I have friends that are, that are pastors in the community. If you go around the corner down I-35, uh, there's a little church there called the Oaks. Not long ago, I was coming out of a movie theater, and the guy goes, Dr. Seif, Dr. Seif, and it was the senior pastor there, Pastor Wilson. Do you remember me? I was a student of yours. As a professor, I've had over 20,000 students. And uh, some are here, by the way, that uh, Keith uh, and Candy uh, Rendell, Rindell, I forget exactly how, to, uh, were, were students of mine. And not only that, there's friends here as well. I'm speaking this morning to Brad and, and Jana Vanderberg. Brad used to be a music minister of mine uh, when I was pastoring some years ago. And your music minister, Caleb, uh, was in my youth group. For those of you that know uh, Molly Voigt, she was a very active parishioner. So, you know, I'm here among friends. I, I really super love it. Uh, it's not a pleasure to have the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Again, as I'd said, because uh, Brian is a little under the weather, but we're trusting he's going to get the better of that in, in very short order. Though not a pleasure particularly, it really is a super duper honor. Uh, Barry and I love the church. Uh, I love getting together, guys. If you, you know, Wednesday mornings, I'm always there at the uh, prayer breakfast. Well, not always, but I'll, most of the time. And we have a great time there. And uh, when we're here, I love sitting at the table and learning from Sister Carol in Sunday school. We're being blessed to, uh, to, to go through the book Shmuel or Samuel. And uh, so it's really a pleasure. If you're visiting here and you don't like me this morning, give it a chance next week when the pastor's back. But I just want to let you know I'm not professional staff here or anything. I'm just a guy that's loving it. And it's, an, it's a thrill for me to have an opportunity to be here with you this morning. I got a text yesterday. I was on my way to DeSoto Police Department to work out at the gym. Uh, when I got word that, uh, that Brian said, hey, listen, you're going to be around, but you have an opportunity to step up. And so as I was there for about two hours throwing some weights around, uh, I was thinking, what's the overall, you know, as I'm prayerfully sifting through, what's the mood? What's the moment? And I want to look at the first uh, thing that came to mind, the first uh, slide. I'm wondering if there's anybody uh, besides me that is just feeling shocked. Uh, when, when, when I think of the world around me, the exigencies, the pressures, the things coming unraveled, so it seems, things not going entirely my way, things that don't comport with my sensibility, uh, uh, I, as I was processing uh, what it was that I wanted to share, if it's true that Jesus speaks through your heart, as it says in the Johannine Gospel, the Gospel of John, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If that's true, I wanted to get some sense of what's in the heart. And again, I don't know about yours, but for me, there's this shock and awe, which gave birth then when I had opportunity finally to get to my word processor and uh, begin to pick through what I wanted to share. We'll go to the next slide. Here's what I come up with. This morning, I want to talk about drama and trauma in century one. Now, you're, you're going to find that I'm more of a professor kind of guy than a preacher. So, so, so bear with me. But what I want to do here is look at snapshots of disorientation and reorientation in early Christian history. What I want to do is I want to capture the, the feeling of shock. And with that, initially, 
And primarily, though not exclusively, what I want to look at is canonical literature, biblical literature, the Newer Testament, and specifically, what I want to do therein is capture moments of disorientation and disequilibrium. What I want to do is just, first of all, observe that it's in there. If for no other reason, just to remind that the precariousness of human experience has been around ever since there is human experience. But what I want to do is look at canonical literature, uh, principally the New Testament, though not exclusively. Uh, New Testament literature develops during the apostolic era, but I'm interested in the sub and post-apostolic eras as well. What I want to do is look at how disequilibrium and how people were getting resolution to it, thinking that it might uh, help us as we find ourselves in our own uh, circumstances in life. So I'm interested in snapshots of disorientation and reorientation in early Christian experience, hoping that you'll find something that might be a reasonable takeaway for these troubled times. Now, when I say snapshots, I mean it. Let's go to the next slide. When I say it, I mean it. I'm looking at pictures. What I want to do is look at biblical texts, but principally, I want to use uh, visuals to get to it and through it, and I'll give the biblical references for it because I want to paint something on your mind and not only do I want to do that with biblical literature when we're there, but as I gravitate from there and look at the early second century and mid-second century uh, literature, uh, uh, storyline there, I want to look at art, early Christian art. Similarly, I want to look at not just art, the visuals of art, but I want to look at music. What I want to do is draw from the oldest hymnal ever discovered. I want to see what they were, you know, if it's true that words are a window into the soul, uh, through the music that, that's translated by James Charlesworth, a professor at Princeton University from the Aramaic, it's called the Odes of Solomon. It comes from Syria. And what I want to do is get a window into those first attempts to express what it means to be Christian when they were doing it right at the turn of century one into century two. You with me on that? Now, when you, when you look at the hymnal there, the music, when you're just pivoting around 100 AD, keep in mind that Judea was racked and sacked by war. Hundreds of thousands of refugees fled into Syria. So you're looking at the, uh, the, 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 the music of, that's sung by displaced people in a precarious world. You with me on that? Well, I'll, I'll endeavor to introduce these sources the more so when I get to it because you won't be necessarily familiar with it. But at the first, let's go ahead and look at, uh, I want to begin here with the next slide. We'll get through it quickly. Where do we go from here? I'm interested in that. And that's the zillion dollar question for people that are a little discombobulated. Let's go to the next. I'm interested in pictures of disorientation in the apostolic era. There's Jesus with his Talmidim, Yeshua in the Hebrew as we call him. Talmidim means disciples. Let's go to the next. I want to look at a familiar picture here, which you may be familiar with. Very common. Da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper. Uh, who's, who's seen that before? Okay, it's not a first, it's a very popular picture. It doesn't abide my sensibilities at all. Personally, I really don't like it, but it's popular, so I'll go with it if I want to talk about the Last Supper. The reason why I don't like it, uh, the, the least of the reasons why I don't like it, this is supposed to be a dinner meal. If you look at the windows, the sun's shining brightly. It's not the Last Supper, it's the Last Lunch. Um, but the, the other pro there are a variety of other problems that I have with it. If you look at Passover, uh, Passover is a Jewish Passover, a special Jewish meal. And this is when Yeshua, Jesus, and his disciples gathered together to celebrate a major Jewish holiday. A problem I have with the picture is there's only one Jewish-looking boy in the whole group. And um, he has this big crooked nose. I do take that a little personally, number one. And he's leaning back there grabbing the money bag. <laughs> to whom am I referring to? Judas. 
uh, that doesn't comport with my sensibilities. Talk about systemic racism uh, there, you know. It's, uh, I'm not as convinced that it exists in, in police, though we do have bad apples in every profession, and when we find them, we dump them. Uh, but uh, uh, systemic racism in the church. Another thing is, if you look at Passover, another problem I have with the picture, uh, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But if you look at Da Vinci's picture, there are these puffy wolves of wheat bread all over the place. Matzah is like a cracker. Another problem I have is at Passover, you would eat beef, but if you look at dinner there, it's fish. You know, Da Vinci figures, well, you know, they're all good Catholics, you know, Good Friday, what else would they be eating but fish? Uh, that, uh, uh, to me, it's an example of taking a, a perfectly Jewish story, and it's not only un-Jewish in the way it's told, but it's a little anti-Jewish. But that's not my point. What Da Vinci is trying to capture, my problems with it aside, is in the Johannine Gospel, the 13th chapter, verse 21, it's when Yeshua, when Jesus looks at them and he says, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And what Da Vinci's, Da Vinci was there at the moment, of course. He was there and he had a Polaroid camera. And he was there, and what, what he catches when Jesus tells the group, one of you will betray me, Da Vinci goes, click, he's got the Polaroid. And what he's capturing on print in his own way, in his own day, is the reactions to the disciples, of the disciples upon learning uh, this. It's this shock. It's, it's one of a number of things that Jesus said and did that was shocking. It left them a little door disoriented. And by the way, if you've ever experienced betrayal in your webs of relationships or the threat thereof, you might know what I mean. But I wanted to look at betrayal. We'll go to the next slide now. There's another one, and I can't spend too much time on either. Yeshua, Jesus, leaves the Last Supper, and he goes to the Garden of Gatshmini, Gethsemane. Got is the Hebrew word for press. Shemin is oil. You put the oil there, there at the base of the Mount of Olives. Been there zillions of times. In fact, they just found, they just did some uh, biblical archaeology review, just did a gig on new discoveries there, down there at the, uh, the garden. Uh, but you might recall Yeshua, Jesus is there praying. He's sweating blood. It's a real intense moment. He couldn't get the group to stay with him. You know, it's late. They're kind of zonking out on him. But what happens is the stillness of the night, you know, and the boredom of a prayer meeting, uh, the way they would have perceived it perhaps, is broken up by Judas, who's procured a band of soldiers. Boom, boom, boom. He comes with the police. And uh, what happens is, is Jesus gets jacked up by the police, subsequent to which, or in the context of which, then what happens is this guy Peter wakes up. He sees what's happening. There's chaos. There's confusion. He draws the sword, and what does he do? He cuts someone's ear off. What I want to do is look at betrayal and note that exists in the literature. And I want you to note that there are times when things don't make sense. There's shock, there's disorientation, there's anger. We find that in the literature in the Matean Gospel, chapter 26, verses 47 through 54. Therein, the story is told. It's not the only place where the story is told of the arrest at the Last Supper, but it gives a window into drawing the sword. And one of the things that we learn from this, one of the concomitants is that when Jesus says, look, Peter, put it away, this isn't the way we roll around here. It's not the way we fight this stuff. You know, it is what it is. I want to look at the next slide, which is a particularly touching story. And I note it as excruciating misery. And I'm not just thinking of Jesus. And by the way, the word excruciation or excruciate comes from the Latin excrucis, which means from the cross. You know, and it's some painful stuff. It's interesting that our country has such a Christian heritage, even the English language bears vestiges, bears footprints of, of, of biblical vision. Now, the, the Romans were ruthless. Even the term ruthless, by the way. In the Older Testament, the most famous and virtuous woman, her name was Ruth. She was so kind, so virtuous. And to be without virtue and kindness is said to be ruthless in the English language. 
There are things that are passed down in culture and language that come from a biblical commitment that's dissipating, it seems to be. In any case, that's an aside. Here, uh, I noted as excruciating misery, not just for Jesus, not to diminish the cross. In fact, I want to lift up the cross, but there's his mother. And I think personally that it's life's worst insult for a parent to have to bury a child. I can't think of anything else than to have to see your kid die. Now, granted, when I raise mine, I threaten to kill him every other day. <laughs> I raise sons, I threaten to train them, I, I, I threaten to take him out back and shoot him in the head and bury him in my yard in a Villa Oaks Drive. I threaten to sell him into slavery. I threaten to trade him in for girls, all that. Uh, but I was only kidding. And, and they knew it. But the point to actually have to see to actually be there. Now, what I'm interested in are dramatic vignettes here, dramatic moments. I'm drawing upon storyline that I assume is reasonably familiar. And again, what I wanted to do, just to go back to where I began, I, I wanted to capture shock, despair, and I wanted to put that genie in a bottle. And what I wanted to do was observe with you how... We, when you look at the biblical text, you know, usually we read it and we kind of go through it on the quick. Uh, when, you, when we do it, we don't necessarily stop and consider the moments. And, um, but what I want to do is look at those moments, again, just to remind that there are times when, when those that follow Jesus, those that loved him, find themselves disoriented, confused, things are not going to pl according to plan. I mean, it, it just looks like this whole thing is coming unglued. I mean, and, and never mind the political say, uh, position for a moment. There are times in life, as all of us make our journey from the womb to the tomb, you know, there are times when we're thinking, oh my God, this thing's just kind of coming unglued. Life can be so very fragile, so very precarious. What, you, what I want you to see is that it's not unique to you. It seems to me that it's part of the human condition. And here, when I think of Mary, uh, the, the artist here wants to give a picture of that. In fact, it's interesting that uh, as an aside, uh, I've been to Italy on a number of occasions, right there in, in, in Rome, um, in St. Peter's, in the vestibule, there is this statue of the Piatta. And actually, Michelangelo did it three times. This is when, 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 when the body of Christ is, is, is put on his mother's lap. And in the first one, you know, Jesus is just kind of draped there. But then the last one, she's hugging him close. And it kind of reminds me, and I'm thinking of this as 65 uh, and that, I'm 65, and when I think of my, my children, the family, you want to bring it close. You know, there's a kind of yearning. In any case, that's an aside. But here, speaking of yearning, you can look at Mary, and you can certainly see it there. Excruciating misery. Let's go to the next one. I'm interested here uh, with uh, dashed hopes. Now, you might recall the stories told in the Lucan Gospel where... Uh, Jesus, uh, these two disciples are on the road to Emmaus, which isn't far from Jerusalem proper. And, you know, Jesus has been crucified and, and things are a mess and people are disoriented. And, and these two guys are walking down the road and Jesus comes up. Hey, guys, what, 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 you guys look so sad, man. What, what's the gig? You know, why are you so downcast? And they look at him and they, they say, man, you, uh, you, you don't know what's going on around here? Jesus says, no, what? You know, I'm just kind of new to the area. And they go, concerning Jesus, man, we thought that he was going to come and, and set things right and do miracles and, and fix stuff. And he says, man, our own, our own authorities jacked him up, threw him under the bus. And Jesus goes, sure enough, can't believe it. So they, 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 it's interesting, not only are you looking at a story here where people that are working with confusion, things weren't going according to the narrative, that they had anticipated, they looked at Jesus and they says, baby, you can't lose with the stuff I use. That's what I'm talking about. He's a real kick butt kind of guy. You know, we go to fight against those Romans and if we get injured, no big deal. He touches us, ping, we, we can drop, we just jump up like a drack in the box, baby. You know, we're not gonna lose. 
We get stabbed. Ain't no biggie. He touches it, heals it. Well, you know, armies move on their stomach. You know, where are we going to get food? Ain't no big deal. Just give him a piece of bread and a fish and he feeds thousands. Baby, I'm going to follow that guy. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, Jesus didn't get rid of the Romans. The Romans got rid of Jesus. Not according to plan. Now, what happens is they're living in that moment. And Jesus is just kind of letting them have it and playing stupid. You know, Jesus goes up to them, what's going on, guys? You look really sad. And they, and they go, don't you know what's happened here recently? He goes, no. I mean, it happened to him. He knew, but he was just kind of playing dumb. And so the story gets fleshed out. But then finally, later on, they hunker down for the evening. They have a meal together. And the story is told in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. They have a meal together in the context of which they realize, oh, wow, this is really Jesus. This is him. And then he does a Star Trek. He kind of gets beamed up by Scotty. He vanishes. But what I'm interested in here is this moment of, of disorientation. I want you to see how uh, things don't always work out according to plan. If you look at that road, it, it is so bumpy. Let's go to the next slide, if you will. And what I'm interested in here is political confusion. And I chose a scene here. Uh, where, where Jesus is there with his disciples. And what I'm harking to is Luke volume two, AKA the Acts of the Apostles. Therein, you know, you know, in Luke volume one, we get to the gig, you know, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and the disciples, okay, cool on that. He's risen, we got it figured out. If you look at the beginning of Acts then, Jesus is there with a few weeks with these guys doing Bible study, you know, resurrected Jesus, and they're kind of getting pumped up again, and, you know, things are cool. Okay, we get it. You did tell us you were going to be crucified, but we just thought it was one of those parable gigs. You know, you did that a lot. But now we get it. Yeah, okay, cool on that. It's making sense now. It's all coming together. And, uh, but what happens is, then, if you look in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it's the last thing that the disciples say to Jesus, after which it's all prayer. I mean, you, you can talk to Jesus today, you know, but the point is, is he ain't present. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, whenever two or more are gathered, he's, but I mean, I mean, Jesus is there, you know, in Hebrew, uh, basar, you know, sarks in Greek. I mean, he's there in person. He's there with them. And, and, and they, 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 they ask him, and, and, okay, we get it, we get it. You're here, Jesus, Easter Sunday, my bad. We didn't see that one coming, but okay. A little slow of hearing, but we're on it now. And we got that all sorted out. The last thing they, they do in Acts chapter one, verse six, they look at Jesus and they go, look, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Translate it. We get it, you know, love one another, parables, miracles, cool on that. But Jesus, we're here in Israel, baby. And, and, and the Romans are ruling us. We don't like the political situation. When are you going to fix this stuff? You know, we were expecting you to fix this stuff. We were expecting you to do that. So, you know, they asked Jesus, the, the last thing before it's all prayer before it's all prayer, the last thing they ask him, they say, hey, boss, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Subsequent to which Jesus doesn't say, hey, guys, look bad on that. It's, forget the Jew. It's not a Jew thing. It's a new thing. Never mind Israel. No, he goes, look, never mind the politics. If you look in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, it's not for you to know when. He says, it's not for you to know when that's going to happen. God has his own timetable. He'll do it when he does it. But he says, but you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, until the other ends of the earth. I mean, look, disciples, you can vote, but at the other end, your primary purpose is something other than the kingdom of this world. That's what he says. That's what he says. And by the way, his world was a lot more jacked up than our own. In any case, political confusion... What I want you to see is when you take a look at it, there's moments in the Newer Testament where disciples are dealing with issues, it seems to me, 
that are not entirely unlike our own. Let's go ahead to the next slide, if we will, please. And what I want to do is pivot. And I want to look not so much at disequilibrium, but equilibrium. I don't want to look at uh, disorientation as much as orientation. That is to say, here I'm interested in pictures of reorientation in the sub-apostolic era. That is, in the next generation. That is, people who first experienced Jesus and they pass the torch to the next generation. It, 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 do they leave any testimony that gives us a window into understanding how they dealt with the political and personal precariousness of their own human experience in their own, to use a German expression, Sitzimleben, in their own context, in their own situation? Are there any testimonies of how they applied the Jesus story to the moment? You with me on that? Now, cool on that if we have someone around today that's, you know, about 1,900 years old. Now, I'm 65. I'm real old. I'm somewhere between going, going, and gone. I wake up in the morning and smell. I'm wondering if I'm going to pick up any rigor mortis. You know, I know that the better part of my life is in the, it's in the rearview mirror and not in the windshield. It's just got to be. I'm not that old. Well, Jeffrey, you want to go back and talk to us about, you know, 100 AD? You weren't around back then. Okay, who was? Let's go ahead and uh, look at uh, the next slide. I want to look at pictures. And again, remember, I said I'm interested in pictures. Oh, he didn't open the Bible once. Well, I, I, I would hope that you, in your own mind, would assess that I'm, I'm being true to the biblical narrative. That, that, that's central to my way of thinking and feeling and communicating. But I said what I wanted to do was look at pictures. Pictures at an exhibition. Now, here's one. It's called an orant. If you look at early Christian art, we're looking here at the catacombs. It's before 100 AD. We're looking at the catacomb of Priscilla. Priscilla. Now, underneath the city of Rome, there's hundreds of miles of carved passageways. Um, and, and therein, there are these carved out areas where early believers met. You ever heard the term the underground church? Now, those people that were there, they're long since dead, but they leave behind text. Case in point here, pictures. And this is one of a number of examples of the orant. And orant has to do with the way people prayed, you know, hands extendward up to God. There's a kind of surrender there. People say, well, I don't do like that. I'm a Baptist. You know, I don't go with that new trend in America. Well, here we're going back, you know, you know 1,900 years. What's your pleasure? Wake up and smell the coffee. It's not, it's not, it's, 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 you know, it's not entirely brand new. Uh, the point is, uh, if you look at the picture of the orant, But these people that are praying that way, and, and I could have shown more pictures in the catacombs of this, this, this common prayer posture. Th this isn't a garden variety crowd that's heading off to a Benny Hinn crusade and, 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 and wanting to hear. Uh, what I want to do is to, to give an understanding of what's behind this. What I want to do is take a, a, a trip into, as I mentioned earlier, we're looking at a text uh, from the, right around the, the year 100 AD, and James Charles with at Princeton, this is, uh, by the way, in a two-volume set on pseudepigrapha, fancy name, won't go into it all, a, a variety, you know, a cadre of scholars got to work on translating a variety of text in a variety of language. It's historical in nature to give us a window into the ancients. And this is a hymnal. Let's go ahead and go to the next. And what I want to do is look, if you're taking references, you know, biblical, no, 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 no biblical references here. But what I want to do is just look at some of these songs that were uh, translated by Charlesworth and, and sung by the ancients. The first is from 21, 1 through 3. I put 13 there. My bad. I raised my arms on high on account of the grace of the Lord because he cast off my chains from me and my helper raised me according to his grace and his salvation. I stripped off darkness and put on light and even I myself acquired members. In them there was no sickness or affliction or suffering. 
Uh, these people are singing a song about believing that God can, is a, they're believing in a turnaround God who can heal people, change situations. And there is this, I raised my arm on high. I want to look in Ode 27. Again, we're just looking at, song, at, at, at songs. This isn't scripture. You know, when, when I think of scripture, the New Testament, there's a Latin dictum, norma, normans, non normata. That is to say, it, it, the, the, the biblical literature itself is what provides the norms for Christian understanding, doctrine, and conversation. This simply is ancillary to it. It's, it, it's just to give a window into how other people did it. That's all. I'm interested in, in Psalm 20, in Ode 27. I extended my hands and hallowed my Lord. For the expansion of my hands is his sign. And it's what comes after that I want to really drill home now. When they're praying like this, and when, when you look at the ancients, when, 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 you, when you look at the depictions, not just in, in frescoes as per the, uh, the catacombs. I could have brought a book, you know, but this isn't supposed to be a university class. Robert Milburn, early Christian art and architecture, Oxford University Press. Um, there's uh, uh, all these etchings and, you know, just the, the stuff they, the marks they left. Here I'm just looking at fresco for the moment and, and, and a hymnal. When they're praying like this, He says, I extended my hands and hollowed my Lord for the expansion of my hands is his sign and my extension is the upright cross. That is to say, when they're praying like this, it's not send the miracles and the prosperity and oh God, I need a new Mercedes. Uh, what, what, and, and by the way, I don't mind you being ambitious. Nothing wrong. In fact, I mind it when men aren't ambitious. But that's, another, that's another story. Um, but the point here is that when, when they prayed like this, they're remembering the way Jesus finished up. And, and th there's a way that they're identifying with that. And amidst the turbulence of trying times, that apparently was central to him. Talk about lift him up and live him out. Okay, I want to look at another one here. If you look at 35.7. And then I want to get away from this, and I got some other fish to fry, then I got to get out of here. If, if, you, if you look, and I do, because my car, you know, I, I took the Jeep today, and uh, we went to, you know, Sunday school with Carol, uh, her class this morning, and then we, Barry and I went to get in it, and the battery was dead. So I got other things to attend to. Okay, uh, 35, 7. I extended my hands in the ascent of myself, and I directed myself near the Most High, and I was saved near him. Again, there's this, this reaching up to heaven. Now, by the way, when you're looking at these people, these I mentioned earlier, we're looking at displaced persons. We're looking at a despised subculture that was getting beat on by the Roman Empire, that was being disenfranchised. Employment was problematic trying to find a life, trying to find a living. Amidst the turbulence of trying times, there were people, uh, you know, they're remembering the Lord, they're reaching up to him, difficulties notwithstanding. Now, if you were placing bets in century one, you probably wouldn't bet on these people. But in case you haven't noticed, 2,000 years later, Christianity is all over the world. Guess what? We won. Amen. We beat out all the abysmal circumstances. And it's like there's an, in Exodus, in Hebrew Shemot, it's, you know, it says the more they were oppressed, the more they were multiplied. There's an old saying, I remember I was paralyzed from the neck down. I had a disease called Guillain-Barre, and I learned an expression then, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, I got, I got the better of that and went and, up to get a black belt in Taekwondo. There you go. They didn't expect that in the hospital, now did they? That, that, uh, um, but, you know, you wouldn't expect... You, you, you wouldn't have expected this to be a winning team, but there's this testimonies here of people that are just pressing on with the Lord, and at the end of the day, things didn't always happen the way they wanted, but they won. And lastly in this, uh, in 42, I extended my hands and approached my Lord, because the stretching out of my hands is his sign, and my extension is the common cross that was lifted up on the way of the righteous one. 
Again, it's music, but it's telling. Let's look at the next slide. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the way, let's see, where, the way Christians applied the cross on the quick. And I'm really getting close to closing. There's an old saying, I love a finished speaker. I really, truly do. I don't mean one who's polished. I just mean one who's through. <laughs> Enough already, baby. Jeffrey, you know, you know, hope you're having a good time, but the snow's rising, and I didn't come here in a Jeep. I told Barry, I says, hey, honey, we're going to love it here. She says, oh, the snow, you know, because we have another car, too. I, I says, no, we'll take the Jeep. It's all good, baby. And we made it, and now it's conked out. And because I was looking forward to kind of roaming around in the snow, you know, and looking at all these worried people, but just chilling out, four-wheel driving, you know. But, uh, you know, God humbled me. You got you. Okay, thank you. There you go. Amen. I was hoping someone would volunteer. Why do you think I said that? There you go. You're the man. I want to look at some extracts from three individuals from North Africa. I mention this because, you know, we tend to look at Christianity as a white Anglo-Saxon religion. I don't know where you've been from, but it wasn't born out of Washington, D.C. It came from Jerusalem. How about that, baby? And, and, you know, it spread all over North Africa. In fact, here... Uh, one of the persons, Cyprian, who's a writer, was the bishop in Alexandria, Egypt. And by the way, Alexandria was the intellectual center of the ancient world. And, and then I want to hear from two from Carthage. Alexandria, Egypt is Egypt. You know, Carthage is Libya. And uh, I want to hear from a lawyer, Tertullian, who was converted. And then I want to hear from a bishop, Dionysus. And what they're talking about is the way Christians perform during plague. The way that they perform during plague. You know, the cross, loving, caring about the world, giving your lifeblood for others. Things can be disoriented, you know, but Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. They believed in Easter. That, that, that uh, you know, they believe at the end of the day they're on a winning team. And uh, we're going to go on following Jesus into an uncertain future, whatever it comes to, whatever it is, it is. Uh, but we're just believing for a positive outcome. The, the overall disposition in life was optimism, not pessimism. And, you know, we talk about lifting them up and living them out. Well, here's Tertullian at the first in his apology. Now, apology doesn't mean I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's, it, it's apologia is from a Greek. It means to make a defense of. He says, and I quote, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. What was characteristic um, of early Christians was a kind of kindness more so than a kind of anger at the world. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know about you. I'm 65. I look at the world. I am not a happy camper. But personally, I think it's better to light candles than it is to curse the darkness. You know, I don't want to be like the poet Dylan Thomas, rage, rage against the dying of the light. You know, it, it's, uh, there's lots of problems in this world. I want to be part of the cure. Now, for all I know, I wrote you a speeding ticket and just sitting there mad at, mad at me and you're thinking, well, where was that grace and virtue then? Well, hey, baby, that was then, this is now. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, the, I mean, it, it's, you know, you, you, you want to be there helping. And Tertullian is exhorting, he's saying, listen, guys, this is what's definitive of us. I want you to hear from Cyprian, uh, in Carthage, who wrote a little after that. And he's talking about a plague. What happened is Roman legionnaires were camped east in Parthia at the eastern edge of the empire. And they, they picked up disease and they brought it back with them as contagion then in the pre-modern world. There was, there was one point in Rome where one out of four died and people were throwing bodies out of windows, and everyone who was anyone got out of Dodge and went to the country. Everyone's just trying to flee it. Cyprian, 
And by the way, I was reluctant to, to, to get into this because I don't want you to misconstrue me in saying it. You know, we live in a plague world right now. We do want to exercise due cautions. You know, I wear my mask and, and uh, I'm serious. I'm washing hands and all the rest. I got sanitizer in my bag. I want you to hear from Cyprian. The just are dying with the unjust. How suitable, how necessary it is that this plague and pestilence, which seems horrible and deadly, searches out the justice of every, each and every one and examines the minds of the human race. Whether they will care for the sick, whether relatives dutifully love their kinsmen as they should, whether masters show compassion for their ailing slaves, whether physicians do not desert the afflicted. You know, it's his way of saying, listen, this is not the time to put it in reverse. I want to look at Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria, who similarly in 260 of the Common Era is, is giving voice to response to plague. He says, and I quote, and by the way, I'm finishing up in very short order in case you're wondering, is this guy aware of the clock? Yeah, it's staring at me right under the slide. It's not there, but it's there. I know where we are. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless to danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to the very need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them some departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Now, that's why I was thinking of maybe this is not appropriate to share. Um, I'm not looking for people to go out there and practice martyrdom, but I am interested in people practicing kindness. And that's with people that are of different political persuasion, that is, with people who have different cultural understandings, that is, with people who are ill, etc. That uh, there's something that's characteristic of us. He says, many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Oh, by the way, they found that just nursing, someone's sick and they're left there to die, just someone that comes to them and gives them a cold compress and a little bit of kindness, 50% of the people get better. I mean, if you look at the word hospitality, hospice, hospital, it's all cut from the same cloth. And, and it really, it all evolved out of a sense of Christian faith and virtue. And that's what was definitive. We didn't leave, them the, 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 we didn't leave the world just to go its own course, and whether it's people, whether it's circumstances, we just don't leave it to go into decay, despair, disorientation, and death, but whether we stand in there in Christ's name, and we show that we march to the tune of a different drummer. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters and deacons and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Kindness. Early Christians remembered the cross. I'm not looking for you to go out there and throw yourselves in harm's way, but I'm looking for you to practice kindness. Let's move on to the next. I want to just quickly, we're looking here in Duryaropa, Syria. We're looking at the earliest above-ground church in the world, and what you're seeing is a painting in the fresco. And um, I don't know, you can see it, it's barely visible. There's, there's someone with an arm extended in a, in a Roman toga. This is Jesus. In Latin, underneath it, it says, rise, take up your pallet, and walk. Perhaps you can vaguely see there's a paralyzed man who, who, who picks up his, his, his bed and walks away. Early Christians believed that God had a way of turning stuff around. And I mention that because during Europa, this was a house church in Syria. It's the earliest above-ground structure. Princeton University, I forget whether it's Princeton or Yale, you know, had aspects of it as a traveling exhibit. 
Um, but what this is, is when people gathered in this house church, someone is, is bringing a word, but behind them, there's, there, there's painted right there, in, in, right behind the picture of Jesus from the Joannine gospel. Rise, take up your pallet and walk. And it's not just the John gospel, by the way. Uh, if you look at the gospels on the whole, uh, raising up paralyzed people seems to have been one of the preferred miracles. They believed in that. Let's go to the next slide. Early Christians believed in miracle working, a miracle working turnaround God, as have others. Now, what I want to do is take you on one quick trip of four pictures. This was right after the American Revolutionary War, right before the Civil War. And I want to take you into the world of Thomas Cole, who was a, a painter, a Christian painter. Now, we, we've just come out of of a horrible split in the country, you know, and wars and upheaval. And it ain't over yet, you know, we're, there's going to be another one in short order. But Thomas Cole, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a series of paintings that he did, and it's called The Voyage of Life. Real quick, let's look at the first one. They go in, in order. Now, there's a picture here, and if you'll just bear with me interpreting art on the quick, and then we're done. I mean, just really right after on the quick. Thomas Cole, there's a picture here of an infant on a boat. There's an angel behind, and there's an angel on the front of the boat. And he's speaking of early childhood, when things are protected, people are guarded, life is secure. If you look right around the boat and the angel, things are green and verdant. You can see darkness, dark shadows, and, and, and crags and cliffs behind. There's a kind of darkness, but there's a sense in which he wants to articulate that in youth, particularly in early life, individuals are more or less sheltered from all of that. The bad stuff's there, but there's a kind of shelter. I want to look at adolescence now. We'll look at the next slide. Therein, you can see we don't have a child on the boat. What we have is an adolescent. We have a teenager who tells the angel, hey, you can stay on the shore, and the adolescent grabs the rudder. I can, I can take this. I can go with this. Here's where I'm going. Now, there's a kind of enthusiasm. There's a kind of pushing off on the religious aspect of it there, and I got this. I'm going to do this. And it's a season in life that, that's marked by a kind of self-confidence, the word confidence comes from the Latin confides, which means with faith. There's this kind of brazen disregard. There's this optimism. Now, you can look there in the, in, in the clouds. There's a castle-like picture. And heading off to it, I mean, th this guy's going to go conquer the world. And there again, as in the previous picture, here again, things are calm. The waters are calm. It's green. All is well in the world. Now let's go to number three, midlife. Now this is a guy, this is the midlife. You talk about the midlife crisis. Here's our boy. He's in the boat, but he doesn't have his hand on the rudder anymore. He's like, oh, Jesus. Because if you can tell there, the boat is just about, it's not just that it's going to plummet down a waterfall, but it's going to break left hard. And there's a sense in which all looks lost. It's like, oh my God, I am not a happy camper. There's not even a semblance, an attempt to try and control it. Again, he doesn't have his hand on the rudder. The thing's out of control. Gone is the placid waters and the greenery and the nice, all, all that stuff is gone, baby. It's dark. It's ominous. And it's, oh my God, I'm right there at the edge. Now, there's seasons in life. This Christian author, Thomas Cole, wants to give voice to the different seasons in life. And you might say that you are there right now, or you might say that you've been there. You know, as we make our journey from the womb to the tomb, no one comes through unscathed. You can look at a speaker and go, boy, that guy's got it together. Boy, if I lifted up the shirt, there's scars everywhere. If you spent time on the planet, you've taken some hits. You've had this, oh, Jesus moment. Now, there's a sense in which for me, you know, when, when, you know, when I consider the current circumstances in life and culture, it's like, oh, Jesus, it looks like this thing's about to break and turn. 
midlife. The last of his pictures is maturity. You know, here, the boat's a little beat up, but you know what? He didn't get killed. The waters are calm again. Yeah, there's some darkness, but he sees the light. And the angel that he left at adolescence returns to him here. There's different seasons in life, and sometimes it seems that it doesn't all go well. But Thomas Cole, in his own way, between the wars, wanted to talk about an undying faith that God has a way of leading us to it and through it and will come out on the other end of it. I think, it's in I think that message from Thomas Cole between the uh, Revolutionary War and the Civil War, I think that message is as, just as important today as it was back then. And I think the story that he's, that he's telling in his own way with art is the same kind of story that people were telling in the catacombs. I think it's the same kind of story that people were telling in the, uh, uh, in the Dury Europa Church. I think it's the same kind of story that people were telling in the New Testament about Jesus. At the end of the day, God has a way, and I think for those of us that find ourselves a little dissatisfied in life, it's important to know that. Let's go to the next slide. Was the world undone by the chaos in century one? I wanted to get the rhyme thing going. Was it undone in century one? Question, answer, no. It was redone, not undone. Actually, with the Christian story, hope came into the world, and we're the carriers of that torch. Let's go to the next slide. Instead of being fearful, I say, let's look over the horizon with faith. We're going to go ahead and uh, uh, dismiss, and, and well, announcements are going to come in a minute. I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, I hope... And by the way, thank you for affording me the opportunity to share this morning. Thank you, back, uh, Pastor Brian. It's just an honor to be in the church, not to be a speaker in it, just to be a participant. For those of you that aren't here in the flesh, uh, I get it. I, all of you, kudos to you that came. The weather's uh, precarious. Those of you that are watching, thanks for watching. And do come. Whether you come to the church or not, the important thing is to get the church in you, the church's message, a message of hope against the turbulence of trying times. It's a tough season for all of us, I believe. But God has a way. Lord, we come before you. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we don't thank you for the world as much as we thank you for the opportunity to be in it. We know that you love the world so much that you sent your son into the world. Not just to come into the world in general, but to come into us in particular, Father, and within the sound of my voice. Should there be someone that has yet to experience you, Father, I pray you give them the boldness to take those steps and begin a journey with you as they make their crossing through life. We don't love the trials, Lord. We love the outcome, Father. Give us wisdom and guide us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. And Lord, forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.